I titled this um, this sermon, How Does Your Garden Grow? I, as you might have guessed, I did steal it from Mary, Mary, quite contrary, but that's as far as it goes. <laughs> and basically, it's drawn on the themes of what Jesus raises and what he's about to say to us this morning. And, you know, Jesus is eminently going to speak to us this morning because I know we have it in recorded uh, form in our, our Bibles. But, you know, we've been blessed with a, a wonderful imagination, haven't we? And we can use it for all, or for good, for either for bad, but this morning I want to use it for good. And I want you to imagine yourself, transport yourself uh, to the shore of uh, Sea of Galilee. Okay, and if you've got, you say, well, I'm not sure where I look at. I've got a picture. It's just about to come up. I'll give you an idea what the Sea of Galilee might look like. This was this the spot? I don't know. It might have been, but we're nowhere nearby anywhere where Jesus was speaking these words to his disciples. So imagine yourself. You are there among the crowds. You are among the disciples, and Jesus is speaking to you. So with that, we're going to turn to Mark chapter four. And we're going to be reading verses 21 to 32. Do we have a wee Bible? Uh, ah, that's a, that's a case of help yourselves. If you want a Bible, you haven't got a Bible, there are one at the end of the, the seats. You're all good here at uh, Kingswells. You've always got the ones who forget, oh, look, I've got to bring it. I can have one. <laughs> well done. Well, the words are also going to come up on screen as well. So let, let's read and let's listen. To what Jesus has to say. Say no, I need to read it from there. I've not got a Bible. <laughs> I'm slagging everybody else. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> anyway, let's read. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Amen. So hence the title, How Does Your Garden Grow? And those uh, parables, those analogies that Jesus uses, you can see the connection between uh, a, a very agricultural society. It's got the themes of light, of growing. And, you know, for anybody who's a farmer or a non-farmer or a gardener or even a non-farmer, 
we could all probably agree there are fundamental things that you need in which to see a produce or to see a harvest. Fundamentally, you need light. You need fertile soil. You need a seed. <laughs> but you also need a, a great deal of perseverance and a great amount of expectation as well. And in a sense, these themes kind of summarize what Jesus is talking about here, principally when he's talking about the kingdom of God. And the first thing I want to say to you this morning is you've got to have light in order. You've got to let the light in in order to let it out. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? You know, the theme of light is probably one of the most fundamental analogies that Jesus uses time and time again. We see it throughout the Gospels. He often uses the, the, the metaphor, the, the analogy of light to describe either God himself or the kingdom of God or himself and even his followers as well. And that's why Jesus uses it so often, again and again and again. Often there's a slight nuance, a slight, a slight change in the way he uses it, but fundamentally the whole theme of light tends to contain all of these things and more. But what, what is Jesus saying when he uses it in this incident as it's recorded in chapter 4? It's an unusual phraseology. The grammar's a little unusual when Jesus first uh, introduces this to this um, analogy. When he says, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl? Well, the NIV doesn't really pick this up, but the more literal translation of the text would read, the lamp does not come in order that it may be put under a basket or under the bed. Now you may think, well, that's just grammar, that's just the way somebody's written it, but it's so unusual that some commentators have picked up in it. And there's only another occasion where Jesus uses this phraseology. And it's in John's Gospel. When it says, the true light who gives light to every man was coming into the world. In John 1 verse 9. I think when Jesus first introduces this parable, this, this metaphor of the light, he's actually is pointing them towards himself. It's to himself. Particularly when you consider in Mark's gospel that Jesus, to a certain degree, he has veiled his identity. He's not shouting from the rooftops, I'm the Messiah. He's wait, almost waiting for people to realize it, to discover it. And he's closed the mouth of the, the demonic, saying, you're not going to testify on my behalf. He says, be quiet. And as we go through Mark's gospel, through the story and Jesus' mission, we begin to see the veil gradually being drawn away. Till at the end, in his death and his resurrection. But it's also striking as well at the very end of the gospel, that a Gentile, a Roman centurion, is the one who says, surely this man was the son of God. It was there for everyone to see, but they had to look closely. They had to watch. They had to listen to everything that Jesus was all about. Because Jesus is the light. He's the one who can testify to the, the true nature of God. He's uh, the true nature of God's kingdom, what the kingdom is like. He is the, the life. He's the wisdom of God. He's the mind of God made flesh. It's, you know, it's the, the old carol sings, you know, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. 
We know that not everybody did hail him, though. And not everybody did receive him. But for those who did receive him, something amazing happened. There was a transformation in them. You know, it was like the wick of God was lit in them. That's what Jesus did. The same light, the same purpose to shine and to illuminate a dark surrounding, to dispel darkness. You know, imagine, we probably could imagine, perhaps in here, because there isn't any natural source of light apart from maybe perhaps through there, but imagine this room was completely submitted in darkness. There was no means of any natural or artificial light coming in. We'd probably find it hard to find the door. But imagine for a moment that a single candlelight was lit. It would immediately make such a big difference, wouldn't it? But then imagine for a moment if that light was then to begin to be multiplied again and again and again and again and again and again in the same instance. It would be so to the extent there would be no even place for a shadow in this room. And that's what Jesus wants to create and see happen in each of us. You know, when he came, he didn't keep his light to himself. He didn't say, I'm going to keep it hidden forever and ever. It was for the purpose and intention that it should be unveiled. It should be making a difference to the wider world. And it did. And he did that in and through his first disciples. And he did it and he continues it through his church today. The light of Jesus, the light that is Jesus, the light that is the word of God, the light that is in you who claim to be a follower of Jesus, it's not to be hidden under a lamp or under a bowl, but it's to be given a place of prominence, just as the lamp in the Jewish household was given a place of prominence. It had to be because it was on the light source at night time. They were going to stick it somewhere obscure. They needed to put it right in a prominent place where it could shed as much light as possible. And lit up the dwelling house. You know, and that in itself is a, maybe a word to us this morning. You know, are, are you obscuring the light of Christ in you? Are you saving it just for a Sunday morning perhaps? Or are you putting it in a prominent place? Everywhere you go. You know, there was a fellow at the conference, a guy called Mark Green, who spoke about, I think it was at the, the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And he says, you know, so much of our, our, our Christian endeavor and life, we pour into perhaps a, a Sunday bit for the rest of the week. It's like, well, let's just go today with God in church. I'll just stick, keep my head down, go up my job and save it all for a Sunday. <laughs> That's not what Jesus wants. You know, that light, he wants you to put it in the most prominent place. So use it in the place where you spend most of your time. In the workplace or at home or on the playground or wherever it is. If you're in retirement, God bless you. <laughs> but use it in your retirement, you're a member of clubs, whatever it is you do. You know, put that light on display so people can see it and benefit from it. But it also means, and as we put it on proper display, what is the practicality of it? It's going to affect how we treat our closest family members. I know it's so easy because we take give ourselves allowances, don't we? For those that are closest to it. So as in, they, they often see the worst of us, don't they? Like, well, they, they like to think they see the best of us, but they, they see the worst of us as well. 
But we've got to let them see the light of Christ as well. Our work colleagues, our neighbours, the good ones and the bad ones, <laughs> or the easy ones and the not-so-easy ones. You know, it affects our attitudes, our values, our conscience, our behaviour, our conversations. Everything needs to be radiated to the light of Christ. I don't know if you know this, but apparently human beings are bioluminescent. That means you actually do glow. You actually have a physical glow, but it's so weak, the human eye can't see it. This is a common science. Okay? But there is a light, and Jesus wants to see it. And it's his light. It's his, almost like his reflection being emanated from you everywhere you go. He wants people to see it. You know, there was a story from um, World War II. I think it was in 1942, and it was a it was an Allied campaign. It was an absolute disaster. It was a, a battle on the Java Sea. And uh, the Allies were completely destroyed. But there was an incident in that where a, a, a destroyer had been torpedoed. And it was 116 men, this was in the night, floating, trying to grasp, find something to hold on to. It's a way the hope for rescue. And it was a, we don't know who it was, but a guy on the Houston uh, destroyer had a bright idea of attaching a light to a, a life boy as he threw it out. And that was the focal point in which all the sailors swam to and gathered to. And it also led the British destroyer to come and to rescue them. You know, it's such a poignant uh, illustration of your life, of what the light of Christ is for and what it does. It rescues us. It gives us a, a means by which to steer our life. Why? But it's also a means of rescue. And when we think of it like that, why on earth would we ever want to keep it hidden? You know, we want to rescue, we want to save, we want to restore, we want to aid people. And that light that Christ has put in you is there for a purpose. So don't ever dare put it under a bowl <laughs> or under the bed. Keep it in prominent place. Another thing I want to ask this morning is, is your soil any good? Or in other words, do you listen well? You know, if I asked that question, probably half and half in the room. Some of us would, you know, pride ourselves in being good listeners. Um, sometimes it depends on who you're speaking to. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a good listener, but often, as I say, when we're in conversation, or... How would we describe it? Uh, passionate discussion. <laughs> I don't tend to listen too well. <laughs> but Jesus was referring to here in this incident about when he's speaking. When he's speaking, how well do you listen? He said to the, the, the people there, consider carefully what you hear. It's almost a cautionary warning. You could also take it as a command. Strive to listen to what I'm saying to you. Listen carefully. And when Jesus says that, it's often something very important that he wants to say to us. He wants to communicate to us. And he identifies almost a dynamic in the Christian life. That anyone who comes after him 
needs to realize this. And it's this. To the extent that you're willing to take God seriously, is to the same extent that he will take you on. You know, if you consider the, the parable of the prodigal son, it's a story we're all fairly familiar with. But the thing is, whilst he was with his father, he, he had everything. Everything. He had a want for nothing. And yet the moment when he asked for that share of his property and began his journey, he was immediately now living on borrowed time. He was living on a past blessing. It was almost he had the residuals of it. And the longer he spent further and further and longer and longer away from his father, the blessing began to diminish, didn't it? The purse of money was fast running out. And the longer it went on, the more wretched he became and his circumstances became. Until he came to a crisis point and he found himself sitting in a pigsty, <laughs> eating pig food. And then he realized, what on earth have I done? And he realized that he needed to get up and begin the journey back home. Now, I know it was just a parable. I don't know if Jesus was commenting on a particular somebody he ever knew, but I imagine that that son probably never ever left home again. <laughs> because he knew where the blessing lay. It was there, in the imminent company of his father. What cause had he ever to go anywhere else ever again? He knew where he had to be. And that's where it was to be found. And it's the same for us. You know, Scripture has enough endorsements to encourage us towards a deliberate pursuit of God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James chapter 4 verse 8. Seek the Lord on his strength. Seek his face continually. 1 Chronicles 16 verse 11. And Jesus himself said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from you, you can do nothing. John 15 verse 15. You know, I want to quote from uh, J.C. Ryle, who was an old Bible commentator, an old Bible teacher from the past. And he said this. This is a principle which we find continually brought forward in Scripture. All that believers have is undoubtedly of grace. Their repentance, faith, and holiness are all the gift of God. But the degree to which a believer attains in grace is ever set before us as closely connected with his own diligence and the use of means, and his own faithfulness and living fully up to the light and knowledge which he possesses. Indolence and laziness are always discouraging God's word. Labor and pains in hearing, reading and prayer are always represented as bringing their own reward. I love this verse. It says, the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. <laughs> you can be fat with scripture, with the word of God. That's from Proverbs 13 verse 4. An idle soul shall suffer hunger. Proverbs 19, verse 15. And he goes on to say, Attention to this great principle is a main secret of spiritual prosperity. The man who makes rapid progress in spiritual attainments, who grows visibly in grace and knowledge and strength and usefulness, will always be found to be a diligent man. He leaves no stone unturned to promote his soul's well-doing. 
He's diligent over his Bible, diligent in his private devotions, diligent as a hearer of sermons, diligent in his attendance at the Lord's table, and he reaps according as he sows. Just as the muscles of the body are strengthened by regular exercise, so are the graces of the soul increased by diligence and using them. You know, in a sense, we need to become more like the first disciples. You know, there was an incident in John's Gospel when Jesus, after he'd given a particularly hard teaching, suddenly everybody was leaving, saying, well, I've, you know, I've had enough of that. You know? And all he was left with was the twelve. And this is what he said to them, says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered on behalf of him, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus has the words of eternal life. And it comes back to his cautionary warning. Be careful then how you listen. Strive to be obedient to the commands of Jesus. Strive to seek him out in every occasion and every opportunity. Carefully ponder and reflect on his words. Digest it, eat it, swallow it. Fill your stomach with it. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to grow in faith? Do you want to overcome the trials and the tribulations and the temptations? Do you want to recognize his grace and his favor at work and in your life more and more? Then lean on him. Feed on his word. Develop a dependency on being guided by his word and spirit. You know, and the more we do that, the more we will see that exponential growth that Jesus then goes on to speak about with a mustard seed. Next thing I want to say to you is, he's everything that you need. He's everything that you need. He said to them, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. You know, I've never had the opportunity to go to Canada or the Rockies or anything like that, but I know that's roughly where you'd find a giant redwood tree, I think, isn't it? <laughs> there may be in other places. That's where I imagine. That's where you find the biggest of the redwood trees are possible. But, do you know, it's a comfort and assurance that as big as that tree is, everything that it needs is in that seed. That tiny little seed, the, the DNA of that tree and how big it is, is all in that seed. There's nothing that you can do to that seed. You can't genetically modify it. <laughs> you can't add to it. You can't do anything. It's got everything it needs. Everything to reach its full height and potential. In a sense, all you need to do is put it in fertile soil and let it, God do the work. And it's no different when it comes to spiritual growth. The word that God had planted in you has life in it. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul planted, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made the plant grow. And so it continues today. 
If you've received the word of God, well, you can water it. You can feed on the word of God. Obedience to what Jesus says is almost like the watering of the plant. That's all you need to do. Just water it. Listen to what he says and follow through. And that's all any one of us can do, isn't it? That's all that Jesus asks of us. To be obedient to his word that he's planted in you. Trust him. Follow him. Follow through in all the things that he's commanded you to do. And all the things that you said you would do. (laughs) Just do it. Just do it. And you will inevitably see that continued growth. A closer intimacy with God. Because remember, this is God's will for you. And what does the word say? That he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. You see, God is expecting to see tremendous growth in you. You know, actually, it takes more effort to suppress the word of God than it is actually to release it. You know, when a person submits to the Spirit of God at work in them, they will see this exponential growth in their spiritual life. And in a sense, I'm talking about personal maturity, but it also has that communal uh, community sense to it as well. You know, the Christian's life is not more than just about me, but it's about you and you and you and the person who doesn't know Jesus yet. But they will know Jesus because of you. We're almost to be like Ivy. You know, Ivy climbs and grows up a wall like crazy. And then to have the same tenacity of weeds as well, popping up all over the place. And this is where the seed and the light analogies come together. It's meant to spread. It's meant to keep growing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the thing is, you wouldn't need to try too hard. Because God will ultimately be the one doing it. The last thing I want to say this morning is anticipate great things. Expect great things. You know, any farmer needs to have a, a, a degree of expectation. Anticipation, hope. Well, they probably would never have been a farmer. <laughs> or a gardener. I know I'm not much of a gardener. Jude is better than me. But you know what? God is the most expecting gardener ever. He has high hopes for you and me and so many other people yet. Much more than any of us could ever realize or even dare to imagine. It's interesting that Jesus chooses the mustard seed, isn't it? I mean, for the people he was speaking to, for them, that was the smallest seed in the whole wide world. They'd never seen any other seed that was smaller. The mustard seed, as far as they knew, well, yeah, you can't get any smaller than that, Jesus. But why did he choose it? Well, why? Why did he pick something big and impressive? I think it's to inject a bit of reality into the situations we find ourselves. You know, Jesus has never been a spin doctor. He calls a spade a spade. He says, this is the way, well, this is certainly the way things seem to be. He relates to us. He knows how we feel. He knows how we see things. And he knows that we often look around us in despair and think, well, oh, it was so easier in my granddad or grandmother's generation. You know, people were more that way inclined. You know, they thought about God more. They were, they, 
you know, it was just part of our culture, society, you know, people would more easily have gone to church and would have listened and you could have had a conversation with, about Jesus with somebody at least. Oh, it's just harder these days. You know, it says in, um, I'm looking for the verse. In 2 Chronicles 16, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. You know, if the the Lord is having to scan the earth looking for somebody (laughs) to to encourage, you know, we kind of think, well, what chance have I got then? (laughs) You know, it's not for us to hedge our bets according to what we think the odds are. It's just for us to keep on going, keep sowing, keep sowing, scatting the seed, just keep sowing, keep sowing, just keep sowing. That's all we're asked to do. But the funny thing is, you know, just as it took root in you, and don't take this the wrong way, don't mean to be rude, (laughs) but it's as much a miracle that the seed took root in you as it will anybody else, isn't it? Do you think yourself any more exceptional than anybody else in Kingswells or anywhere else in Aberdeen? Why the seed should have taken root in you than it will in anybody else? It's a miracle of God. The life is in the seed. You know, it's... I don't know if any of you have ever seen or heard or the musical Man of La Mancha. It's a, it's a play on the story of Don Quixote. Just to give you a brief synopsis of what it's all about. The story here was a crazy old man suffering what we now call senile psychosis or perhaps even dementia. dementia. And the action takes place a hundred years past the age of chivalry. And there are no knights anymore. But thinking he is one, Don Quixote puts on this strange suit of armour and rides forth into the world to battle evil and protect the weak and the powerless. He brings along his funny little servant, Sancho Panza, as his squire. And they arrive at this broken down old inn used by mule traders. And he calls the innkeeper the lord of a great castle. The innkeeper tells him that he's just bonkers, mad, crazy old fool. And in that place, he meets the most miserable of human beings. He also meets this pathetic orphan girl who does the most menial chores and is basically used as a prostitute by the mule traders who come through that place. It always gets me when I read this. But he pronounces this wretched girl as the great lady Dulcinea. And he begs for her handkerchief as a token to take into battle. And she reacts with fury at him. But the funny thing is, at the end of the play, the old man is close to death and no longer suffering from these delusions. He has almost like a moment of clarity. But in a moving scene, all the people that he renamed appear at his bedside. And they beg him, not to change. Because his excitement about their future has in fact transformed them. <laughs> and they've become the people that this insane old man has seen in them. 
think in a moment in that moment there's almost a Samaritan between Don Coyote and God even. But God sees so much potential in this world. Hence the reason why he sent his son to die for it. It wasn't a hopeless cause. Because he knew that his word, that his son, could bring a change and transformation into the most miserable people ever. He did it for us. He'll do it for so many more. And he wants to use you. He wants to use you. That's such a wonderful, exciting thing, isn't it? You know, that Jesus calls us co-workers. Co-workers with Christ. (laughs) Who could ever believe it? (laughs) But you're named in the Bible as a co-worker with Christ. (laughs) That's the reason you're here. To go and shed light, spread light, go and sow seeds, transform lives. You know, I know we've all got our own specific, well, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? Well, in one sense, we already knew it. Go and be light. Go and sow seeds. Spread the word. You know, five years ago, I think it was about five years ago, who would have thought that we would have been seven sites across the Shire and the city? God did that. He did that. He gave a call to the leadership team and to the church to go and spread life, to sow seed, and start new expressions of city church. Did we have any guarantees that this was going to work? That it would be successful? Did we have a surefire business model that was going to guarantee success? Of course we didn't. But we had faith and confidence in the word of God and in the commands of God. Go in and all the world and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all my commands. You know, we could have stopped there. We could have said, well, Lord, we've done it. We've done it. We've, we've got our seven sites. We've spread life. Let's put our feet up now and shut the doors. <laughs> We're all here. But it's a funny thing. When you begin to work with God, you begin to work alongside Jesus, you soon realize there isn't any retirement age. The work's not done until the work is done. And therefore, should it surprise us then that when we've been faithful in a small matter, that he says then he will entrust us with even more. That's a common teaching throughout the Gospels. As a church, we're not called to retire into a holy huddle. No church ever is. It's called to sow again and it's again and again and keep on sowing. You know, we have this vision now to plant 21 churches by 2021. Does that sound ridiculous? It does, didn't it? It's absolutely ridiculous. It is. And that's not a confession of, oh, we can't do it. He can do it. He can do it. And is it any more ridiculous than asking 12 hopeless cases to change the world? Is it? There's certainly more than 12 of us in here. To think, 12 people. I'm sure there are a lot of disciples as well, but they're the 12 that we often think about. What could you do? 
and King's Wells. In one sense, this is your little part of the world at the moment. What are you going to do to transform it? What are you going to do? Remember, everything, every part of your life is to be illuminated with the light of Christ. Remember the neighbor next door, the knowledge, whatever. Get him along to the curry night. <laughs> that thing that you enjoy doing, you know, that, that hobby. Is there any means you could draw somebody else into it? Maybe that community group that you're always part of. You're the, you're the light there. You're, you're the light. You bring light to that that nobody else can. We've all been given a light. We've all been given a seat. Let's just go and keep spreading it abroad. Keep sowing it. And it will plant in the most unlikely places. Just remember it planted in you. If God can plant in you, he can plant in anybody. So I want to encourage you this morning. Live up to the light that God has put in you. It will do immeasurably more than you can ever imagine. Even in your lifetime, the short time in which you have been a Christian already, whether it has been a lifetime of being a Christian, you have undoubtedly changed many more people's lives than you're even aware of. Just keep living in the light. Letting the light be unveiled. Showing it. Keep spreading the word. Can we stand?